this morning I'm going to take you to the fourth gospel in the New Testament, John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. The four gospels are a must-read for all of us, a reread, and read it again and read it again. They are the only four sources of the eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So it's a select cover of the life of Christ that you're going to read. If you're reading Matthew, if you're reading Mark or Luke or John, and all of them had a, a different, seems like a different motivation when they wrote. Matthew's obviously writing to a Jewish audience. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, more references to Jesus and the Old Testament messianic verses. Mark, you get into this, um, and immediately, that's probably one of his most favorite words, and immediately, he's kind of writing to a Roman mind, a, a thinking in Roman, the Roman world. And then Luke, uh, writing to Theophilus, it's kind of like writing to an entire Gentile context, explaining terms, having things unique in his gospel account that is not in Mark and Matthew. Those three are called the synoptic gospels because they kind of dovetail with each other, have the same kind of format. And then you have John. Wow, that is a whole different book. Doesn't start anywhere like Matthew, Mark, or Luke starts. Not about his birth, not about his baptism. It starts off with just getting to the point that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you ever have a chance to talk to some of the Jehovah Witnesses that park themselves out next to Winn-Dixie in different places, I love talking to Jehovah Witnesses because they got John 1-1 one, one all messed up. And uh, I says, hey, what does John 1-1 one, one say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. I said, a God, little g, right? Yeah, I said, that's a terrible translation. Terrible translation. You couldn't translate that any worse than what was just translated. Because even in the original language, it's reverse. Theos ain't logos. It really is saying God was the word. It doesn't read that way when you translate it to read in a fluid motion. I said, that's, that's, you can't put a little g there. You just can't do that. And it just really thrills them for me to point that out. But let me tell you something. I don't do that for argumentative purpose because the Lord loves them and he died on the cross for them and he was raised from the dead so that they couldn't know him. And so instead of slamming doors in their face, just offer, if you, do, if you don't want to discuss that with them, just pray with Offer to pray with them. And if you get some of them that allow you to pray with them, you, that's a rarity. But because they're so closed off to the truth, if you get any opportunity to share the love of Jesus, by all means, do not be mean to them. That does, that's not a very good witness. And you have this account of John that is a treasure that you could explore every single... You could read it five times a day, and I'm telling you, you will not exhaust the wonder of his account. We're going to go to John chapter 7 to begin with, and then we're going to come back to John chapter 4. Um, in John chapter 7, you're going to find the word thirsty in what we're going to read this morning, and that's the title of this message. And... Uh, you might not like people doing this, but I want you to ask your neighbor one question. All right? 
Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? How many of you answered no? Anybody answered no? I asked Caroline a question this morning at the coffee bar, and I told her she just made herself into my sermon. And I asked her, I says, Caroline, is it possible for somebody to be thirsty and not know it? And she said, you mean like, you know, a, a drink of water? I said, no, just a blanket, thirst, no matter what it is. She said, yeah, it's possible. I said, I wish I had a prize for you. You just answered it correctly. Because what you're going to read here as we go through this is that people had a thirst that they really didn't know they had. And Jesus is right in the middle of everything. So I want to, I want to show you a definition for thirst. Because it's got two angles to it. And this is from Merriam-Webster, and you know this has got to be correct. I looked it up online, so you know if it's on the web, it's, it's right. Um, I shortened it up. A sensation of dryness, kind of like what dehydration causes this sensation that you've got to have something to drink, um, a desire or need to drink. But look at two, an ardent desire, a craving or longing. And in this room, you have a thirst that you may not be aware of that God wants to supply. So here's the points I'm going to go over. And if you don't have a handout, you know, this is uh, for you if you're going to jot some things down. These are the main points I'm going to cover this morning. One is spiritual deprivation or a, a depriving of water, dehydration. I wanted to use this word instead of dehydration because it's more, it doesn't have anything to do with liquid water per se, but a spiritual lack that creates a thirst. The second thing is soul satisfaction where we really encounter what God has for us to satisfy the thirst of our inner core. And the third thing is a constant supply that's satisfying an ever constant thirst. You say, is that possible? Yes, it is. And it's preferable, really. And the last is an evidence for life. Let's, let's jump into the first one, spiritual deprivation. Now, thirst is present everyone because I can tell you this. Our, we were created, every one of us in this room, were, we were created in the image of God. And in the image of God, he created in our soul a place for him that nothing else fits. It is the throne room of our lives that he created for him to dwell in, for him to live in. And if he's not there, there's this longing or craving to replace that with something. And this is why everyone has some God. Everyone has something they lean on. If it's not Jesus, it's, they've got something else being their Lord. Now, let me tell you, the worst Lord you can have is yourself. We don't make very good lords, and we don't make very good gods at all. But we have this core in us, this in our soul. And I want to take you to a place in John 7 where it's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you, I'm not going to read all of it. At the start of this, you'll see that Jesus is in Galilee for a reason. He's not in Judea. And he's in Galilee because he hears, the word is out, that people in Judea want to kill him. 
which is not unusual for people. <laughs> they, I mean, he preaches his first sermon in his hometown synagogue, and they try to pull it, push him off a cliff. So this is not something he's unaccustomed to, but for some reason, as you read chapter 7, he is staying up in, in the Galilee area, away from all these people who want to kill him, and his brothers. It's a Feast of Tabernacles, and the reason why John mentions this is that all able-bodied men, according to Moses, were supposed to attend three festivals in Jerusalem. This is mean three journeys to Jerusalem. Now, two of them are close together, only 50 days apart. So a lot of people just stay for both of them, and that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we call it the Passover, and the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. Only 50 days apart, that's why there's a lot of people still in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, because they had traveled there, and they're going to stay for both feasts. Now, the Tabernacles is a different thing. It's over in the fall. In case you want to attend... The Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, it's October the 13th through the 20th. And you are invited. There's a Christian group there that celebrates the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and they invite everybody that wants to come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And here's the thing that's going on. The brothers, Jesus' own brothers, were kind of goading him into saying, you know... It's time for you to go to the festival and really do your thing in front of everybody because you can't be popular if you stay here out of sight of everybody. Now, that's my version of the message. They're kind of like ribbing him. Why don't you go and show off in Jerusalem? And it adds this note. His brothers did not believe in him, so they were kind of goading him. And Jesus kind of gives a little bit of a comeback there if you're there. He says, you know, it's not my time to go, but it's your time. In fact, any time is your time. And besides, the world hates me, but it doesn't hate you. It hates me because I show light on the world, and they don't like that. But you fit in. I mean, he's like, you just fit in. <laughs> so you just go on. I'm not going. I'm not going to the festival. So they leave. The very next statement there, he decides to go covertly, secretly, because he wants to be there, but he doesn't want to arrive with his brothers. Which really kind of gives you an idea that maybe they could have been swayed that, you know, there's something wrong with him and maybe they ought to kill him. I don't know what their sentiments were. They didn't believe in him. So Jesus gets there and, and nothing happens until about halfway through the festival. And he shows up at the temple courtyard area and he begins his teaching and preaching style that he was known for. Just get a crowd, and he was preaching and teaching. And sure enough, the people that wanted him dead sent the security team, the temple security guards. They had their own police. They ordered him to be arrested. They get there. They're listening to him preaching. And they're like, they go back, and they say, why didn't you arrest him? He says, well, nobody preaches like him. Nobody teaches like him. I mean, it's awesome what he's saying. Well, have you become believers as well? So here's Jesus going on. And when you look down in verse, I think it's verse 37. I want to take you there because this is really where we're going to zero in. On the last day, the great day of the feast. This is day seven. In this festival, one of the things they, the priests would do, they'd go to the pool of Siloam, dip water out of the pool, take it through with a great parade to the temple and pour it out as a symbol of blessing and cleansing. 
on the last day of the festival, well, maybe even as these priests are going by with water, Jesus echoes a loud voice saying, if anyone is thirsty, that's what I asked you, right? If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now, if your translation says, let anyone thirsty or whoever is thirsty, come, that's a terrible Translation is not terrible. It's, it's not as good a translation. I'll put it that way. Because if is a conditional word. It is in the original. If you are thirsty. And I think the possibility is this. You are aware that you're thirsty. But he doesn't have water in his hand. So he has to be talking about a different thirst, Right? And it's possible that people are thirsty and they don't realize they're thirsty. They're hearing the words. But he's giving these two sides of possibilities that if you are thirsty still, it is conditional. Come to me and drink, which means there is a deprivation in your life that only Jesus can feel. Don't under underestimate that word if because he says, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm inviting you to do this like Dick Brogdon says. Jesus, God doesn't need us, but he invites us. And this is the invitation of the Lord to people listening to his voices. If you are thirsty, if you have a thirst in your life, come to me and drink. The latter part of that is the soul satisfaction. Come to me and be satisfied in your thirst. And in verse 38, he explains it this way. You know, he's talking about people who have a longing in their soul, a longing in their life, a thirst that is not necessarily a thirst for water, but a thirst of the soul. He said, I will satisfy the thirst of your soul, but you have to come to me and drink what I have. He who believes in me, this is verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water inside of you. This is what's going to happen when you come and drink what I have. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Somewhere in that, though, he was saying, if you come now, you will drink something of this. This is not just a futuristic thing. He says, this is something right now that's available to you. Living water is available to you. And this is the vivid portrayal, the very thing that... Jesus is talking about in chapter 7 is in John chapter 4. And I want to tell you, I could read John chapter 4 several times a day, and I still would say, what a story. What a great story. Because I'm going to take you there now to John 4. We, we're going to probably spend more time in John 4 than we did in John 7. But Jesus is saying, I have the water to satisfy your thirst. And this is a Jesus moment. This is one of those days that Jesus makes everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> These are, I'll get to the last two points, but just hold on to soul satisfaction here. This is, again, Jesus heading to Galilee in John 4. If you're there at the start of it, he heads to Galilee again because he's got problems in Judea. So he goes into Galilee and he's going through Samaria. And he stops at Sychar, this town, Sychar. It's a little village. And there's this well there that dates all the way back to Jacob. 
It has to be very old. Well, and it says simply that he sits down because he's tired. And it happens to be the sixth hour, if your translation says six hours, it's like noon. And then the very next thing it says, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well at noon. And it gives this little description. And John, I, I guess John asked Jesus what happened later so he could write it down. Because John wasn't there. All of, I don't know whose idea it was to send 12 men in the village to buy lunch. It's almost as though the Lord knows something's up. So he gets all of them out of the way, and they needed to be out of the way because they would have been a problem. So while they're gone in town to buy food, this woman comes up, and, you know, I could just feel, knowing the culture, she sees him. She knows he's a Jewish man. He's sitting at a well that she is not really thinking anybody will be there because nobody goes gets water in the middle of the day unless you have a reputation that causes you to go walk, get water in the middle of the day. And as she walks up, stone silence, and she hears this, uh, give me a drink of water. And I think it just startles her. She says, um, what are you doing asking me for a drink of water? Uh, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're a Jew, and why are you asking for me for a drink of water? And there's this little parenthesis that John adds, because the Jews and Samaritans don't commingle. And I love this next verse. This is one of my favorite verses. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I don't know what she thought when she first heard that. We know what she said. But he follow this again. There's so much in this statement. If you knew the gift of God, not the well... Not that Jacob built this, and she really took pride, pride in that. This is, dates all the way back to Jacob. Y'all don't have a well like this. We have a well like this. And she's kind of like thinking, well, why would I ask him? He doesn't have any. She even says this. Well, how are you going to draw water from me? You don't have anything. The well is deep, and you don't have anything to draw water from. But go back to see what Jesus said to her. If you knew the gift of God... And if you knew who was talking to you, you would know the thirst that you have in your life. And you would be asking me for a drink. And she says, well, sir, you, you don't have anything to draw from. Well, look at 13 and 14. Jesus says this as a reply to her. He directs her away from the water that's in the well. This is what he says. Everyone who drinks this water in this well... We'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him or her will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, she caught just part of this. And it's the part that she will never thirst again. Because she keeps in this rim of thinking, 
natural thirst. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's got the wrong water, the wrong thirst, and I love how this conversation changes. This is priceless. I'm telling you, I love this story because he's about to make her really uncomfortable. Go call your husband and come here. Well, sir, I don't have a husband. He says, you've answered that rightly. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you have right now is not your husband. Now, I don't know about you, but I think a typical woman would have grabbed her jar and ran out of there. But she didn't do that. She didn't run. I think she's starting to pick up that, uh, what she says, I, I think you must be a prophet. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> you know, you've had five husbands and the guy that you're with now is, is not your husband. Sir, I perceive you a prophet. And I think this is where a lot of people are at, where this woman's at. She's still in one realm, and Jesus is trying to pull her over into another realm. She's still in the natural realm, and even her religious activity is starting to... She's going to use that to defend where she's at. Now, let me tell you something. And, and there's people probably in this room that's had a lot of disappointments in your life. This woman in her culture could never file for divorce. Women could not uh, divorce their husband. Only men could divorce their wives. So you tell me what she's been through. She's had five different people to marry, for her to marry them, and five different ones have done away with her. And the one she has now, she, boy, she's really in a bad way, really. Given up on that whole idea, and the man that she's with, he probably said, well, you know, I don't want to divorce you, so let's just be together. In that culture, she was probably as in much trouble as anybody could be, and desperate. And so she resorts back to an argument, a religious argument. It's kind of like when you start to witness to someone and they say this, well, I believe in God. You ever had anybody say that? You want to talk to them about where they're at with Jesus? Well, I believe in God. And that's supposed to stop you from asking any more questions. You know, I've had people to come in my office, and one particular guy came in my office, was a drug addict, went to places, went to Texas to get help, sitting in my office, again, coming to me and says, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm so messed up. My life is so messed up. My family's all messed up. I'm... I'm in a terrible relationship with my dad. And, and uh, I began to tell him about Jesus. And, and he says, well, I don't believe in any of that. And there's just a point you reach sometimes. You're just like, okay. And I looked at him and I said, well, why are you in my office asking me? Because everything you've tried, how has that worked for you? I'm trying to tell you that God is as real as this wall that's around us. And he is your only answer. It's kind of like, John, are you thirsty? Do you realize the thirst that's in your life? Do you realize that what you're doing is trying to satisfy a thirst that only Jesus can feel? 
And it wasn't long after that, that young man overdosed and died just not too far down Hargrove Road. And the whole idea was he was, he was trying to use excuses to steer him away from his answer. And this is kind of like, why would this woman go here? It's like she wanted to get into arguing about Samaritans and Jews and where they worship Jerusalem. We have a man to worship. And Jesus really said to her, it's, like, it's not about that. It's not about where you worship. It is about knowing the Lord, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, God is a spirit. It doesn't matter where you worship. He's a spirit. And the only way you can worship him is in spirit and in truth. And by that time, the disciples show up and they have two questions in their mind. One is for her and one is for him. You see that? The one for her is, what do you want? The one for him is, why are you talking to her? But they didn't ask either one of those questions. But they were looking at Jesus wondering, why are you talking to her? You shouldn't be talking to her. That's not... We're not, we don't do that in our culture. We do not talk to women who are alone. And in a Middle Eastern culture, that is still the way it is. You're not supposed to do that. And they're wondering, and she goes off. She leaves her water jar and just goes off. And here's the interesting thing. Because when she goes up, here comes the disciple and says, Master, eat. Eat something. And he says, I, I'm not hungry. He is hungry, but he's not that hungry. He doesn't want, let me see, they couldn't eat ham sandwiches or anything like that. Maybe a chicken sandwich. No, they couldn't eat that either. Whatever sandwich they had, he says, that's not my hunger. My hunger is to do, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he talks about a harvest that is plentiful. He says, you say poor four months and there's a harvest and this is what he's really getting at he says listen we have a mass of people who are thirsty that's what heart that's what a ripened harvest is is when the thirst of the soul gets to a place where people in desperation reach out to the Lord here's the thing that is pointed out in verse 14 he says Whoever drinks from this, and this is the constant supply point that's in the notes. Not only do you get your thirst satisfied right then, but you get the source inside of you that continually satisfies that thirst. It becomes self-perpetuating. It's this fountain of water. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us that becomes our source. He lives inside of us. This is this constant supply the Old Testament passage I'm going to take you to is about this. It's in Isaiah 44. It's probably one of the clearest mirrors of John 4 and John 7 that you see in the Old Testament. Where Isaiah gets this message from the Lord. And this is around verse 3. And this is going to be my final point here. I will pour water on the thirsty land. In other words, I will pour water on thirsty people. And on people who are parched and dry, who are, who are in great desperation. He says, I will pour water on thirsty land, streams on dry ground. And then he says this, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. I will pour water on thirsty people, on dry ground, 
And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the water of the Spirit. And listen to me, he says, the offspring and your descendants will be blessed by the water that is poured out on your life. Most of us in this room are adults, and a lot of us in this room are parents. When God begins to saturate your thirst, it affects everybody around you. It affects your children, your grandchildren. Everyone around you begins to be influenced by the, by the health and the life of the Spirit. And there's evidence of life. This is why he says, the grass like a meadow will appear. You can tell when something needs watering. And I am OCD when it comes to seeing a plant that's wilting. I don't know. I've even done gardening work for, state, uh, for Starbucks because I see weeds there and I pull weeds when I go into Starbucks. I, like, I can't help it. But I see a plant wilting. I'm like, why well, don't somebody water it? It's kind of like it's telling you, you're killing me, Right? Those two hanging baskets out there, I am all over that. I don't need anybody. When I was on, when I was on sabbatical, I told my staff, says, those plants out there will be watered while I'm gone. Because if they're not, and if they are die dead, you remember what I told you? I said, we're going to take $100 out of the offering, and we're going to set it on fire right here. Because that's like burning up God's money. And so, I don't, I think they overwatered them. I think that's what, they like to drown them. But you can see the effect when something is dead. It's the reason why so many people's lives are in the state they're in is that they're thirsting, they're not getting water. They're not being refreshed in the Spirit of the Lord. This is, this is not about ideas. This is not about doctrine or theology. This is about the reality of God's presence in our lives. When Jesus said, come to me and drink, he was saying, come and attach yourself to me. Come not just for a visit, but attach yourself to me. If you attach yourself to me, you will live. The Spirit will come into you and it becomes like a river inside your innermost being, springing up into life eternal. And this woman wanted that and this woman needed that even before she realized she needed it. And quite possibly everything she was doing in her life was trying to satisfy that inner thirst in her. All the men, all of her efforts, everything that she tried to do was not working. And Jesus, hearing the Father speak to him that day, says, I have a rendezvous with you and this woman in Samaria because he said, I don't do anything without the Father telling me. So that little trip through Sychar was ordered from heaven. That's kind of like the lyrics. Heaven begins to fight for you, comes into the battle, comes into the parched land. And it goes back to that one statement. If the praise team can come back up. Let me, let, me just, let me just aggravate some people this morning. How's that? Before we have prayer. Before anybody leaves, let me just aggravate somebody. This coming week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, is about refreshing our lives from the Lord. 
watering our lives is very important for families who are here. Don't limit your children to ministries geared for children. Listen to me. Don't limit your children to ministries geared for children. They need to be in prayer meetings. They need to know how prayer meetings take place. This is why on Sunday night, I tell people, bring your, bring your children to prayer meetings. They're not going to bother me. They need to be in prayer meetings. They need to sit in services. They need to hear messages for the whole family. I would have never been saved. I, I should take that back. I wouldn't have been saved the night I was saved at nine years of age if my mother didn't believe that when we had a revival and if it went five weeks, we didn't miss a night. And if Bill Pitts was preaching anywhere near Children's Brigade, Alabama, she loaded us up and took us to hear him preach and he would scare sin out of you. He would. He would call people out. I remember hiding behind people sitting in front of me, praying earnestly, oh Jesus. Don't let him call me out. Please, whatever I've done, I repent right here. Right here. Please. And I'd look. I would look and they're like, he's looking this way, Lord. And sure enough, I bobbed up and said, Charles. I'm like, oh, I was never really repenting. I was repenting right here. Why do you have to do that to me? Come here, Charles. And I was going up, oh, I don't know what he's going to say. And he would always say, Charles, God's got a work for you. He's got a plan for you, son. And I want to pray for you. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know what was wrong in my life, but I was repenting of it. But there's a few Church of God people who knew exactly who I'm talking about. And it was in a little revival in Childersburg, Alabama, probably about 40 people in the church where my little life came to a screeching halt through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And all I could think about was getting to the altar and giving my life to Him. And I had a transformational encounter at nine years of age and was baptized in water the next year with my sister Ruth. Both baptized on the same day. I know you're busy. I know life is busy. And maybe children don't want to give up iPads and tinkers and things like that. But I'm just challenging you to get here as a family and let God work in your family. Look what he says. Your offspring and your descendants will flourish when you are refreshed. And they'll be like a meadow, rich, and lush with green grass. Poplar trees like they're growing beside streams of water. He said there's a blessing. If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, there's only one place you can go. And that's him. Would you stand with me?